0: Mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. These honest Yet stirring words were written by Martin Luther 500 years ago. It's a really up-to-date him, contemporary. But Martin Luther also wrote some other very stirring words during his life and ministry on this earth. Words that foretell a chilling prediction of what I believe might be happening right now in this very day in which we live. And yet he spoke these words 500 years ago. He writes, If seduction and darkness were again to begin through the wrath and decree of God, as will happen after our days, it is to be feared, and the devil were to begin to perform signs through some false prophet and perhaps cure a sick person, you would no doubt see the mob pressed to espouse the cause in such a way that no preaching or warning would be of any avail. For in those who have no love for the truth, the devil will be powerful and strong. And if then these teachings contradict the chief doctrine and an article of Christ, we should accord them neither attention nor acceptance though it were to snow miracles almost 2000 years ago the apostle paul and the apostle peter left no doubt that with or without miracles false teachers will arise and lead many astray who have no love for the truth listen to what they write in second timothy 4, the Apostle Paul writes, For the time will come when they will not endure sound teaching, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Peter writes in Second Peter 2, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Even in Paul's day, false teachers and false teaching would plague the church, one of the finest churches that Paul had a relationship with during the times that he graced this earth. It says, he writes, to the church at Ephesus and particularly to the elders there. He says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of all the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, That after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And also from among yourselves, men will rise up. They're going to come in from the outside. They're going to rise up within. Speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Was Martin Luther prophesying about the very times in which we live? Should the warnings of the Apostle Peter and Paul resonate with us today? Are their prophecies something we should personally take to heart? Words we should think about. I was reading an interesting article this week. I don't know who wrote it. Couldn't seem to figure that out. But it began in a memorable way, and I quote it. He starts off, or she starts off, I don't know, the thinking Christian, in quotation marks. To some outside observers, this term term seems to be a bit of an oxymoron. The modern evangelical media has presented Christian leaders to the secular society as those who are sure that the evil will be ripped out of this world by a certain date, who insist that God is holding them ransom for $8 million, who claim to hear God's voice telling them to run for U.S. president, who can pitch the anointing into crowds like a baseball and slay enraptured followers in the spirit simply by blowing on them. All this nonsense is bad enough, but when unbelievers see professing Christians flocking after such men by the eager and gullible millions... Can they be blamed for their disgust for Christianity? Can the salvation package really be all that attractive when the label reads, common sense not included? Indeed, who wants to turn to a God who in saving the soul turns the brain to mush? Just how serious is the problem of false teachers and false teaching in our day? I get the feeling as I talk with Christians that they think, you know, what's the big deal? It's interesting, in the New Testament church, if you read the books that were written to the letters, the letters that were written to the New Testament church, false teaching was at the top of the list of problems that they were having to deal with. And I'm not sure that that problem has dissipated any. Are there really wolves out there in sheep's clothing, dressed like Evangelical, Bible believing Christians? A popular host of a major Christian media enterprise announced to his audience, The Spirit of the Lord is falling, miracles are happening. But in the face of criticism, he goes on to support his miraculous ministry before his faithful supporters with these words God doesn't even draw a distinction between himself and us. You know what else that's settled tonight? This you and cry and controversy that has been spawned by the devil to try and bring dissension within the body of Christ that we are gods. I am a little God. I have his name. I am one with him. I am in covenant relation with him. I am a little God. Critics, be gone. A well-known televangelist who has countless numbers of followers told his audience, you don't have God in you. You are one. How far can such false teaching stray from the truth? He continues. Misquoting 1 Timothy 3:16, God was manifested in the flesh and justified in the spirit. Now you can't get somebody justified and made righteous in the spirit if he if it wasn't first if he wasn't if it wasn't first unrighteous. English is a little poor. Jesus accepted the sin nature of Satan in his own spirit. Why do you think Moses, obeying the instruction of God, hung a serpent upon the pole instead of the lamb? That used to bug me. I said, why in the world would you put, want to put a snake up there, the sign of Satan? Why didn't you put a lamb on that pole? And the Lord said, because it was the sign of Satan that was hanging on the cross. He said, I accepted in my own spirit spiritual death and the light was turned off. Jesus made Himself obedient to the lordship of Satan at the cross. God said, you are the very image and the very copy of the one Christ. I said, goodness gracious sakes, alive. I began to see what had gone on in there. And I said, you don't mean you, you couldn't dare mean that I have done the same thing. He said, oh yeah, if you'd had the knowledge of the word of God that He did, you could have done the same thing because you're a reborn man too. Another televangelist who also craves the political spotlight states to his listeners, Most people of God ask God for a miracle, but many omit a requirement, the spoken word. God has given us authority over disease, over demons, over sickness, over storms, over finances. We are to declare that authority in Jesus' name. We are to command the money to come into us. How could this supposedly intelligent man, a former lawyer, end up so totally off base? Perhaps another quote is more telling. He says, I can hardly think that the Bible, which was transmitted through human beings, is totally perfect. I believe it to be the word of God and fully inspired book, but not perfection. Of course, most of us are quick to pick up on this kind of false teaching that marks so many televangelists who don't know their right hand from their left when it comes to the Bible or to theology. But what about influential pastors and other highly respected spiritual leaders today, Christian leaders? Could they be spreading false teaching among us? On Larry King Live, a pastor who supposedly has the largest church in the country, and I I lose count, they always are telling me they have the largest church, so whoever this might be, but located in the heart of the Bible Belt in the south somewhere, Said to Larry King that I don't call people sinners. I don't use that word. When I get them to church, I want to tell them that you can change. There can be a difference in your life. So I don't go down the road of condemning. Sin is not on the menu of my church. He says, I speak and give, to give them a boost for the week. Another extremely popular evangelical preacher was attempting to explain the Bible's teaching about the Trinity. And this is what he says. And he's on the speaking circuit for a number of evangelical conferences and things. He said, the Lord said, behold, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one and beside him. There is no other. When God got ready to make a man that looked like him, he didn't make three. He made one man. However, that one man had three parts. He was body, soul and spirit. We have one God, but he is the Father in creation, the Son in redemption, and the Holy Spirit in regeneration. Now, if you're scratching your head and you're wondering what is wrong with that statement, perhaps we need to take to heart the exhortation of Norman Geisler, professor, former professor at Dallas Seminary and an apologist right now in the Christian world who goes after such false statements, And after critiquing this particular popular evangelical personality and bemoaning the susceptibility of the average evangelical Christian, he writes this, Norman Geisler. He says that the evangelical church in America is about 3,000 miles wide and an inch deep. Doctrinally, we are very shallow. In North Carolina, we are in what is called the Bible belt. But our problem is that we don't have enough Bible under our belts. We have enough religion to make us susceptible but not enough doctrine to make us discerning. You can't recognize error until you recognize the truth. I am told that the government experts want to train people to recognize counterfeit currency. They study the genuine currency. The same is true with doctrine. In contrast to Geisler, another well-known influential pastor of a huge church, who blasts what he calls classroom churches, he describes them in very unflattering terms. And then he says this they stress the teaching of the Bible content and doctrine, but give little, if any, emphasis to believers' emotional, experiential, or relational development. Then he goes on to say, Jesus did not say, I have come that you might study. Now think about that a minute. The Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect thoroughly equipped furnished unto all good works if that says anything it makes it clear that the bible is the place where we find emotional experiential and relational development that's where it's explained It is where we get our enlightenment together and learn how God thinks about our life and our world, not how man thinks. If I want to know how man thinks, I simply can read Time Magazine and see how far astray man has gone from what God thinks. Furthermore, if Jesus wrote the New Testament, and I believe he did, he wrote these words, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I will never forget the story in the Bible of Mary and Martha, two lovely women, both of them loved the Lord. Mary chose the better part, however. Listen to these words. Now it happened as they went You can just picture this going on. It sounds like the typical family. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, he's so compassionate. You are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. I wonder if he would say the same thing about churches. Lastly, we dare not overlook the father of so many false teachers in fact they give their they pay allegiance to this particular person the father of so much false teaching in our day an influential pastor that has been around for many words many years his words cannot help but rot the socks right off the feet of anyone who spent any time at the feet of jesus listening to his words here's a sampling of this false teachers false teaching Jesus had an ego. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Wow, what an ego trip he was on. The cross sanctifies the ego trip. For the cross protected our Lord's perfect self-esteem from turning into sinful pride. Love yourself or die physically and spiritually. Love yourself or you will die spiritually. To be born again means that we must be changed from a negative to a positive self-image, from inferiority to self-esteem, from fear to love, from doubt to trust. Classical theology, oh, so boring, has erred in its insistence that theology be God-centered and not man-centered. In other words, he says it should be man-centered. If the gospel of Jesus Christ can be proclaimed as a theology of self-esteem, imagine the health that this could generate in our society. And what is hell? A person is in hell when he has lost his self-esteem. Self-esteem, then, or pride in the human being, is the single greatest need facing the human race today. Now, you may be wondering why I didn't name names. If these false teachers are so potentially damaging to the lives of God's people... Why didn't you just tell us who they are and we can stay away from them? I'm going to explain that to you a little later on. So hold that question and obey us. Obviously, there are thousands. This is just a sliver. This is a tiny little sliver of the false teaching that's out there today. There are thousands of false teachers. In fact, we may be close to entering a period of time when there are more false teachers than there are true teachers. So what in the world is happening in Christendom today? Indeed, since teachers and false teachers and false teaching has been around for the last 1,900, 2,000 years, what has been happening in Christendom for the last 2,000 years? Or to phrase it in the language that sort of complements where we have been focusing over the last few weeks, what has been happening in the kingdom of God, of professing followers and subjects to the Lord of the Lord Jesus Christ over the last 2000 years. The history of Christianity is not all that pretty. Just for starters, we have the Roman Empire declaring the whole empire Christian in 313 AD. We have the Holy Roman Church, we have the dark ages, we have the Inquisition, we have the crusades. We have the Reformation followed by the state church and all of its deadness. Add to this corruption, greed, murder, war, scandal, lying, and deception, and Christendom is defined by wickedness rather than righteousness. In fact, much of the secular enlightenment that occurred in the 17th and 18th century was a reaction to the wickedness of the so-called church of our Lord Jesus Christ. But most Christians today... Good number of Christians today seldom give such subjects much thought. Understanding the times in which we live is not really all that pressing of a need. Most Christians are content to remain confused and indifferent to knowing anything unless it somehow immediately improves their life or their lot in life today. In many ways, so many today are like the multitudes that Jesus preached to in his day. He had huge crowds. They were the sort of sympathetic people who had an interest in the implications of what Jesus might have to say that might apply to them, but they had no implication, they had no interest in understanding what he meant if they couldn't see how it applied to their life. They only cared about how Jesus made them feel. And when it came to discerning truth, they were bored out of their minds. When we come to Matthew 13, the chapter we've been considering over the past couple of weeks, and the chapter we'll be looking at over the next few weeks, we read that Jesus' disciples were a little put out with him for making it the truth so difficult. For the crowd to get a hold of by speaking to them in parables. In their opinion, Jesus should have put the cookies on the lower shelf. But Jesus says, no, I'm putting the cookies on the upper shelf. Making it difficult to understand, to provoke a few of them out there in that crowd. Who might care enough to ask and seek to understand what I'm saying. Because this truth was special. And it was profound and it was deep. Notice again, Matthew 13, verses 10 to 17. I've written that paragraph out there on your note sheet. Or you can look on, follow along in your Bibles. Matthew 13. This is just by way of review to sort of get us into the flow of things. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. He will have abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jumping down to verse 15. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Jumping down to verse 16. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears for they hear. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men Desire to see what you see and did not see and to hear what you hear and did not hear. You are very privileged to hear this truth. That's what he's telling them. I trust that those of us that are here this morning are blessed with eyes that see and ears that hear God's truth as it relates to the times in which we live. Assuming that, I invite you to continue with me as we look at the parables of Matthew 13 and especially the parable of the wheat and the tares. I've called it the secret of the bad seed. The parable of the wheat and the tares, the secret of the bad seed. Matthew 13 consists of seven parables, followed by an eighth, with which provides a basic key to understanding the first seven. The first four parables were spoken in the presence of the multitudes, most of whom could care less about the point Jesus was trying to make. The last three parables were spoken in the presence of his disciples who couldn't have cared more about finding out what Jesus meant by all these parabolic stories. The two different audiences make a natural division in the overall emphasis. In fact, the first four parables, as Jesus looks out over the multitudes... He shares four truths which present an increasingly pessimistic picture of the future. You can see, I mean, he's looking out and he's seeing the people. He knows they're really disinterested. If he gets somebody up there and heals them or, you know, does something that, you know, maybe goes after the uh, Pharisees and calls them whitewashed sepulchers, he can get them right on track with him. But he knows they're really not interested in anything beyond that. And because as he looks out there, It's bringing into his heart and mind, obviously, the thought that this is the future is going down. It's pessimistic. Jesus was not into possibility thinking, nor the power of positive thinking. In the last three parables, he shares with his disciples alone. And he shares truth that would provide a basis for hope in the midst of an increasingly troubled future. He wants them to realize that there's a reason to hope, even though the future is going to become increasingly worse. Now, as you recall, we have already looked at the first parable a few weeks ago, the parable of the sower, probably more appropriately called the parable of the soils, the soils being a differentiation in the type of heart that we bring to the word of God, tying into the very theme of of this whole chapter. And if we have a good and receptive heart, we will go on to grow and become strong in our faith and productive for the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we go any further, however, we need to review the overall reason for these parables in the first place. In Matthew 12, Jesus experienced a decisive and official rejection by the Jewish aristocracy of Israel. They said, in effect, you are no Messiah at all. You are not the Messiah that's going to bring any kind of kingdom. You are an instrument of the devil, and we are going to oppose you. And that opposition would finally end up by nailing Jesus Christ to the cross. Knowing that, as he knew all things, in Matthew 13, Jesus begins to answer a question that he knew would, in due time, become a driving question in the hearts of his disciples. And that is, what's going to happen to the kingdom program? We, you said you were coming to establish the kingdom. Now the king is going to be crucified. What's going to happen? He, the king is being rejected. What happens to the kingdom? In other words, he, the Messiah king, has been rejected and will be temporarily absent. As we know today, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And the question is, what happens to the kingdom Until he returns, is there going to even be a kingdom? This is what the parables of Matthew 13 are all about. Can we have that diagram with the chart, with the, you know, there it is. I want you to notice a couple things that are important here. First of all, he is not talking when he talks about the kingdom, the mystery form of the kingdom. He calls it a mystery in the beginning of the chapter. And then he uses the term from then on, but we are to understand based on the context that he's still talking about the mystery of the kingdom of God or the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. And when he's talking about the mystery form of the kingdom, he's talking about this kingdom that is a special sense of the kingdom that's going to last from the time of his rejection leading up to the cross all the way to his second coming, just when he comes to establish his kingdom. The kingdom, the mystery form of the kingdom, does not equal the church. On the other hand, those in the church are part of the kingdom. But the kingdom is broader than the church. Neither does the tribulation, saints. It does not equal them, but they are part of the kingdom. Second, he is not strictly talking about Born again saved Christians when he talks about the kingdom, this bottom part here. He's actually talking about all who profess to follow the king. In other words, in order to have a kingdom, you have to have subjects and you have to have a king. We have a king. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's in absentia. He has not returned to this earth and has not yet assumed the throne of David, his father, which was promised in the Old Testament and ruling over this earth with a rod of iron. What we have, however, is a kingdom because there are people on this earth that willingly identify him as their king. They profess that he is the one that they are following in their life. That's an important distinction. It doesn't mean they're saved. It simply means that they are professing to follow the king. This kingdom is about those who choose to identify with Jesus as their king and bear his name before the world. He is talking about a kingdom that will include Jews and Gentiles in one body, the church, yes. It will include the true church, yes. But it will also include the apostate church, as well as Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and fundamentalists and evangelicals and charismatics and liberals and neo Orthodox. It will include postmodern thinkers. It will include false teachers and true teachers. It will include teaching that claims to be teaching Christian truth. It will include word of faith teachers. It will include positive confessionists. It will include possibility thinkers. It will include the remnant that will be alive, Jewish remnant alive during the tribulation period in the heat of that time. What he's talking about here, if you want one word to coin here for the mystery form of the kingdom, he's talking about Christendom. Christendom. C-H-R-I-S-T-E-N-D-O-M. The last word, the last four letters, dumb, indicates we're talking about a, a Christendom kingdom. A kingdom that identifies, in which the subjects identify with the Christ, the Messiah. It's about those who profess to follow him, about what will happen to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, whichever term the scriptures are using. What will happen to this kingdom on earth when the king returns temporarily to heaven after he dies on the cross and ascends into heaven? What happens to this kingdom for 2,000 years so far? And then someday to return to earth to set up the promised kingdom that was anticipated in the Old Testament. He called this kingdom between his rejection and his reception a mystery. Because there are many things about this kingdom that had to be revealed. It wasn't spelled out in the Old Testament prophecies. On the other hand, there are things that are familiar. However, that doesn't mean that everything is new that he is going to share. He is going to bring out of this treasure a teaching and teach things that are both new and old. Look at verse 52 of Corinthians, of Matthew 13. We read this. And this brings us to the final part of the passage that really gives us a key for interpreting the rest of it. He, then he said to them, Therefore every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder, Who brings out of his treasure things new and old. In other words, in these parables, there are going to be familiar themes that go back into the Old Testament. But there are going to be new themes that are entirely new that are surprising. Old themes, new themes. That's where he's going. Again, the basic question that Jesus is answering in Matthew 13 is what will happen to Christendom? To the kingdom program, that was promised in His absence until He returns to establish the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. What's going to happen to it? Matthew 13 provides the the answer. In the first parable, the parable of the sower, was written to convey the truth that God's kingdom program on earth following His death, that the kingdom will be established. There will be people who choose to obey and follow the will of the king. But the results will be less than stellar. The results will be less than stellar. Only a few who come under the influence of his word, of his will, will choose to actually live that will in their life. Become fruitful, productive lives who are living in obedience to the king. Notice verse 23. This is the final soil, but he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Furthermore, not only would there be only a few who would go on to live fruitful, productive lives in the service to the king in his absence during this time, He says there would be many others who would be planted in the kingdom by an enemy to do the king and his kingdom great harm. And this takes us to the second parable that we come to today, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Let's read verses 24 and 25. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed. In his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And we have the slide up there of what a tear looks like. I think I've got it there. There we go. Okay. What's a tear? A tear is a, a weed that is called a beaded darnel, and it was impossible to tell apart from wheat until both reached a point when they began to bring forth the grain. The head, as they call it, heading out. And then it would become easy to tell the wheat from the tares, but the problem would be then is that in the process of those two growing side by side, their roots had become intertwined. And if you pull up one, you were likely to disturb or pull up the other. And so you don't want to uproot both. Both must be left together until the time of the harvest. And the separation, however, was necessary because the tear had a poisonous, noxious uh, content, uh, content to it. It caused dizziness and sickness and is narcotic in its effects. And even a small amount had a very bitter and unpleasant taste. And so you had to separate the wheat and the tares after the harvest. And that separation would be usually done by hand as the grain would be put in a tray and the darnel or black seed would be taken and pulled out leaving the wheat to be easily visible let's read again now the parable of the wheat and the tares in verse 13 chapter 13 verse 24 and another parable he put forth to them saying the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field but while men slept his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did we not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. So what does this parable mean? Again, the issue is not who are the saved and who are the unsaved, but what will happen to the kingdom on this earth while the king is away in heaven? What will happen to Christendom? And so Jesus explains this parable beginning in verse 36 of Matthew 13. He'd already told another parable. And then listen to how this works out. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house after he told the other two parables. And that could have been Peter's house. Some are speculating. And his disciples came to him and saying to him, Lord, explain to us the parable of the wheat and the tares. It really was chewing on them. What do you mean by this? It really had their attention. Inquiring minds want to know. And the Lord was pleased to give them an answer. And so he says, he answered and said to them, he who sows the seed, the good seed is the son of man. Right there, you get a clue at the very beginning about what's going on here. In the former parable, the seed was what? The word of God. Now he's saying he or the sower, pardon me, the sower was not identified. Now we have the sower being identified, and in this case, the sower is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is referred to as the Son of Man. Now, this is a title that Jesus often used to affirm his kingship and his identity with man. But it also spoke of his legal and natural right to the throne of David, to be the millennial king and to lead the millennial kingdom. It was a term that spoke of him being Messiah King. The point is that even in his absence in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, still he had not abandoned his kingdom but is busy sowing those who would further his kingdom in this world and they are called sons of the kingdom. He explained and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed that that is sown is the sons of the kingdom. Here, in contrast to the former parable, the, the good seed was the word of God. Here he's talking about something else. He's going to sow the sons of the kingdom in his kingdom. That's his point. The term implies that they belong to him as king, that they belong to the kingdom. They share his nature. They share his heart for the kingdom. Furthermore, notice that he calls them sons, not people, not children, not subjects of the kingdom. These are sons, and as a result, they're in a position to inherit, possess, run this kingdom one day that, they now work in to further. Notice something else. Notice where the Son of Man, the Messiah King, sows the sons of the kingdom. It says, in the field of this world. Not the church, not the nation of Israel, but the whole world. The sons of the kingdom may be a part of the church or they may be tribulation saints. But the point that is being made here is that Jesus is sowing them strategically in the field of this world. They are people who are born again. They have did the first thing that He has asked them to do, and that is to believe that He is the Messiah who gives eternal life to all who believe in Him. But then they have gone on, and they are bringing forth the fruit of obedience. And He is sowing them that they might in turn sow the Word of God, going back to the parable of the sower. But the field is the Word of God. I mean, pardon, the wheel, the world. John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's interesting as you study the book of Acts, you get up to chapter 8 in Acts, and you have the Jerusalem church. And in chapter 8, there's this enormous persecution. And we read that the disciples stay in the church, but the people flee for their lives. And God has brought this persecution or allowed this persecution to happen because they go forth into other parts of Judea and Samaria preaching the Word of God. He was strategically sowing them, if you will, in Samaria and Judea so that they could be spreading the Word of God. They were sons of the kingdom. But what about the tares? What about the tares, Arch? What happens to them? The field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. Remember, the basic quality of the tares is that they're indistinguishable from the wheat. In other scriptures, they're referred to as wolves in sheep's clothing, as angels of light, as false apostles, deceitful workers, Transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Notice Matthew 7:15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Second Corinthians 11: For such are false prophets, apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministries, ministers, are also transformed themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. Man, we have to watch out. That's what he's saying. You remember Judas? Think about Judas. Interesting, Jesus says, Have I not chosen, chosen you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil? And they didn't know who in the what he was talking about. Judas looked so much like the rest of them. But he was a son of the wicked one. A son of the devil. But you couldn't have told him apart and you lived with him for three years. And you couldn't tell that he was a son of the devil. Amazing. What a warning to us. They may be very visible disciples. They may be good moral people. They may be great neighbors. They may have positive mental attitude. They may have wonderful ministries, powerful ministries, They may be so close to us that we cannot, we would have a hard time believing that they aren't truly one of us. And yet, what they teach and what they produce couldn't be further from the things that the Lord wants in His kingdom. However, in the end, they and what they have produced must be thrown away and burned up, for it is sickening and repugnant to God. The effect they have on the world, the so called followers, they produce are so foreign to what the Lord is looking for in His servants in the harvest. He is looking not for visible disciples, but He wants to know that a disciple is first a believer. He's not looking for those whose lives are revolving around health and prosperity. He's not looking for those that are impressed with man and man's grasp of truth. Yes, the tares and all that they produce will be removed and destroyed by the Lord. That we can be sure of. But not until the harvest, because the tares and the wheat are so intertwined that if you uproot one, you may uproot the other. And this is why I did not tell you the names of who it is that made those statements that I recorded earlier because I found something out and I've learned this sort of the hard way but it is part of what happens that when you mention a name two people become either agreeing or polarized around the name of the person we had this happen a few years ago we had a speaker who came to church and he dropped a name a great message but he dropped that one name and lost a lot of people Because that one name was so respected. That one name may be a false teacher, I have no clue. But the point is that when we put a name out on the table, immediately we begin to think about the person, the results, the good that he does, things that are happening, when Jesus is saying, that's not what we're going to be looking at here. We're going to be looking at the fruit of the false teacher's life, which is what he teaches That's the bottom line. It's not how attractive he is to us or how much he seems to fit our idea of the ideal of what it means to be a minister of Christ. The question is, what is he teaching? Is it of God? Or is it just shaded enough or tweaked enough that it's going to keep people astray, lead them astray, and keep them apart from the truth? Where did the tares come from? Who would do such a thing as to sow tares in our in our Savior's kingdom? When he can't when he isn't here, so to speak, to use that rod of iron to crush those who are his enemies. Well we learn in the next verse the enemy who sowed them is the devil, verse thirty nine. It's the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of this age. An adversary, an enemy. His basic nature is, to, is one of pride and opposition to the kingdom of God. And his sons, the tares, possess the same pride and same determination, the same opposition to the true kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. And the truth of God, which is being spread through His Word. Friends, there's a war going on out there. In comfortable, easy-going South Orange County, there is a war going on out there. And our enemy, the enemy of our Savior Jesus, is strategically placing His sons in positions so they might misguide us, that they might mislead us that they might oppose the kingdom of God. And the best way they do that is to deceive and pervert the truth of God. Indeed, has God said. That's what we're talking about. They want to keep people from living in submission to the king. this age refers to the age that we're currently in. And at the end of this age... There's going to be a gathering together of the tares. And they will be judged. All that offend, we're told. He continues here in verse 41. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. All who offend, all who cause others to stumble by virtue of their teaching... Notice he says, he actually uses a neuter gender here. He doesn't even want to identify them as persons. All that offends. And then all doing lawlessness, whose whole spirit is to rebel against the king, against the the Lord Jesus Christ and his laws and his character, and to shake their fist in his face. And the Lord says, enough of this. At the end all will be brought out of this world. And he will separate the sheep and the goats. He will separate the wheat from the chaff, or the wheat from the tares. And the tares will be destroyed. Completely, clearly destroyed. What happens to the sons of the kingdom? Those who by faith share the life of the king, eternal life. What happens to those who belong to the king and to his kingdom? Those who possess, as the Bible says, a glorious inheritance in the son's kingdom to come. We're in a kingdom today, but we're looking forward to a kingdom to come in which the son will leave his throne in heaven and assume the throne of David on this earth and reign forever and ever. What happens to the sons of the kingdom? Verse 43, Then the righteous, the sons of the kingdom, will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He's talking clearly about the sons of the kingdom. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. The righteous, those declared just and right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, shine forth lights, they will be the stars in those days. We go up there to the Hollywood Walk of Fame and we look at all these stars buried under our feet. These will be living stars casting off the glow of the character and the will and the word of God in their lives for all eternity, ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ in his kingdom in all kinds of ways depending on the gifts and interests that He gives us. So how does this teaching touch our lives right now? Right at this moment. First, terrors. Sons of the devil sown in a kingdom professing allegiance to Messiah the King even though He is temporarily absent upon this earth. These sons of the devil are for real. Real. False teaching and false teachers are for real today in our world. Second. We need to turn away from these terrors. We need to quit listening to them and their false teaching. Notice what we read in Second Timothy. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brooders, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of God but denying its power. And from such people turn away. How do we know who they are? Can you give me their name? Third way that this should touch our lives, we need to recommit ourselves. Recommit ourselves to the study of the Word of God. We need to reaffirm our devotion to the learning and to responding to the truth of the Word of God. Why? Because the true teaching of the Word of God is God's weapon he has given us for making known and identifying false teachers. If you want to get to know who a false teacher is, take what they say and compare it to what God says. But in first, in order to do that, you've got to know what God has said as you hear them. And when you hear them, and they tell you that there's one God and He's got three costumes, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you can say, that's heresy. That's heresy. It's not my giving you a name, which would lead you to question my judgment probably. Because what happens? I give you a name and you say, oh, that couldn't be. Oh, that person is so wonderful. He led me to Christ. But a discussion of that person gets us off track. It's what the person teaches. It is in my giving you the word of God so that you can measure the fruits of these false teachers and what they teach. Notice this. In the same passage we just read in Second Timothy, Paul concludes and he tells Timothy, preach the word. That's what they need. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince them. Rebuke them. Exhort them with all longsuffering and teaching. In Acts 20, they're telling the elders of that church that there were going to be savage wolves that would come in among them and some even from their own body that would come up and rise up against them. He said to them, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You need the Word if you're going to lead the church. And then you can make a decision. We need the Word of God to tell who the tares are. I know that most of us have had problems with rats in our home. Every so often I'll get up into the attic and I can smell the rat It's died. But you know, I learned when I was in Montana, because we had a lot of them, we lived out in the country, I learned to hear them. It's not just enough to smell them after they died. You begin to listen, and when you know they're up there, and you can hear them walking across the rafters and crawling all around. In fact, one night I saw one walk right in front of my fireplace. It's one thing to smell a rat. It's another thing to hear and see the rat. I think that if we get the Word of God down, then we're in a position to hear and see the rat, not just smell him after the, after the fact. I'd like to conclude with a great hymn Martin Luther wrote and sing, and ask you to sing together the third and the fourth stanza with me as we close our service this morning. But I want you to listen to the words... And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. That word above all earthly powers, this fourth stanza, no thanks to them abideth the Spirit, and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sighteth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. God's truth abideth still. And because it abides still, his kingdom is forever. Father, take to our heart, press it in upon our heart, the truth of your word and what it teaches us here in this powerful parable of the wheat and the tares. In Jesus' name, amen. If everyone could please stand. And that hymn is 151 in your hymnals. Uh, we'll do verses 3 and 4.